0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Coaches World podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Gordon Bloom, and Gordon is a professor at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. And with Gordon, we take a deep dive into what actually team building is and team cohesion, and we compare and contrast team building with team bonding. And his perspectives are actually pretty unique because he really can explain these differences very deeply, and he can give very great practical examples and the way how he breaks team building down into scenarios he is explaining to us is very valuable
1: yeah for sure and i think it was a, a really interesting conversation with, with gordon and i think that you know right away he started off with explaining this this study he just finished up with with hockey coaches in an elite level and and how they dealt with difficult athletes and without spoiling anything it just shows how important you know team building is and working with athlete is and and it's really cool to to talk to someone with that kind of research background and and knowledge and you know he he under he he drives his or he explains his motivation as uh wanting to to understand people and and that's how he got into sports psychology and i think that's that's really interesting and, and a really cool motivation because you know if you think of of coaching we've said it before on the show it's it's in you're in the human business so you have to understand people you have to know how to work with groups and and how to build groups and we, we talk a lot about that today and it's, uh, it's valuable stuff for, for any coach or any practitioner to take away. So without further ado, we'll, we'll kick it over to Gordon himself. And, uh, we hope you guys enjoy the episode. So. We would like to welcome on Gordon Bloom to the Coaches Road podcast. Uh, Gordon, thanks for being with us here today and and how's everything going in uh, McGill?
2: Well, Derek and Rick, thanks for uh, having me. Um, I love Finland. I've been there and uh, great country and they have a, a love of hockey as we do in Canada and we share the winter climate. So it's nice to uh, nice to be speaking to both of you. and. Things are going okay here in uh, in Montreal, in Canada. We're going through a second wave of COVID, so uh, certainly at the university here, we're teaching virtually, and a lot of my all of my work with athletes and teams is being done virtually. So, adapting to the situation, but uh, making the best of it.
0: Yes, definitely. Hopefully, we can everyone can return at some point to normality. So. We're getting our back to our usual routines, but as you have been mentioning now that now it is that is it and we, we try to make the best out of it. So what has been your favorite thing you recently learned about and how have you used it? How have you used that knowledge?
2: I mean, I try and learn every day. So um, certainly I have a lot of things to choose from. Um, we just finished a study. Ironically, it was about hockey coaches. And it was published in a journal called psychology of sport and exercise. And in the study, we specifically asked very elite hockey coaches, how they dealt with difficult athletes. So sort of the troublemakers on the team. And I, to answer your question, one of the things that I really enjoyed about this study, the results and that I've learned is that these coaches and they were coaching at the level just before the NHL. So high level coaches, And they said that you have to be very careful about labeling somebody as a difficult athlete, because if you label somebody as that, it really can hurt their reputation long-term. And a lot of them said that people come with different experiences that has shaped the type of person they are. And these coaches said they will go to extreme lengths to try and cultivate a relationship with this athlete and, and understand him better before cutting him from the team or labeling him as a difficult or troubling athlete. And I just found that finding so refreshing because most coaches just, you know, when they see somebody who's challenged them or is difficult, they want to get rid of that person as quick as they can. And our coaches were the exact opposite is let's really take the time, the effort to get to know this person and make sure we don't put a label on him that might impact him for the rest of his life.
1: Yeah, that sounds, that sounds really interesting. And, you know, I think it fits in well with, with our topic here today, but before we jump into that, can you just introduce yourself to our listeners? You know, what is your background, your areas of interest and and what are you currently doing at McGill?
2: Yeah, so um, I'm currently a professor of sports psychology at McGill, uh, which is in Montreal, Canada, um, not too far from the Olympic stadium where the 1976 Summer Olympics took place. Um, I grew up in Canada. I grew up in Toronto. Um, for those of you that are hockey fans, uh, an ardent supporter of the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs. Grew up playing a lot of sports, but hockey was the main sport. I coached hockey, I played hockey, I refereed hockey. And, you know, after my undergraduate, I was looking for a career that would sort of understand people. I had a lot of leadership roles on my teams, and I really always was interested in understanding why people behave and act a certain way rationally or irrationally and sports psychology was an emerging field at that time and I said oh wow this will sounds like something that I would be very interested in studying so um, I ended up going to the University of Ottawa to do my PhD and they were doing research on expert coaching at that time and uh, um, I was fortunate to be offered a spot in a program to be mentored by a fellow named John Salmala, who was a world leader in sports psychology and coaching research and um, took me under his wing and um, got me access to a lot of coaches and um, really got the bug to sort of spend my career researching and studying coaches. And my PhD dissertation, we had, I think, 20 coaches who were national team coaches in Canada and learning about their knowledge and strategy. So uh, pretty exciting stuff. When I graduated my PhD um, in Canada, I really felt like I needed a little more immersion in high performance sport. Um, In Canada, it's the university system is more amateur compared to the United States. So I started looking around for some programs maybe in the U.S. that had a division one program where sports really was high performance sport. And as fortunate, I got offered a job at Fresno State University in California. I know you had a guest on here, Wade Gilbert. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. We studied at the same university and um, he actually uh, took the job when I left Fresno State. He actually took that job. So uh, we followed our career paths together. I was there for four years and really involved in the uh, in the sport program and There's a lot of high-performing athletes in basketball, baseball, and football that have come through that program and really helped my growth and development in sports psychology. Um, Ultimately, being from Canada, I was looking to get back uh, closer to home to family and friends. And it's fortunate when a job at McGill University opened up. Um, It's a research-intensive university with a really good tradition and certainly something I couldn't pass up. So I've been here 20 years now, um, doing my research and coaching, teaching classes in sports psychology. I do a lot of applied work with our coaches and our athletes here on campus, but also I have a private practice. I've worked with Olympians, Paralympians. I've worked for the Montreal Canadiens in the NHL. I've worked with a lot of professional athletes. And um, I'm also the undergraduate program director, which during COVID has got its own challenges. So. That's basically who I am, a scholar, an administrator and a teacher, and when I'm not doing all that, I'm coaching my children in sports and still playing uh, hockey, softball and tennis myself. So hopefully that helps everybody understand who I am, where I've come from.
0: So specifically what we want to talk with you about today is team building and team cohesion, and that's something Uh, We are very interested and very excited that we have the opportunity to speak with you about this because you have been acquiring a lot of experience in the area of sports psychology. As you have been mentioning, you have been working with a lot of athletes and you have done a lot of teaching. So could you please tell our listeners about your professional, so as a researcher and mental performance consultant, experiences with team cohesion and team building?
2: Sure. Um, So for me, the light bulb sort of went on. When i was doing my phd and i had my three-year applied apprenticeship was with our men's hockey team at the time and it was a pretty good hockey team and the coach i think was really forward thinking and as we were talking a, a little bit he says why don't you just try a team building activity with the guys i was like okay so i said i'll give it a try and uh it seemed to go pretty well and the coach he ended up coaching his name was Mickey Goulet and he ended up coaching, um, for Italy at the Olympics when they were a host. Um, they brought in a, an experienced coach from Canada to lead the Italian team. And he did that. So very experienced, knowledgeable coach. And he really put the bug in my, in my head. He's he said, you know, keep trying these team building. I like what you're doing. It's well received. So basically had three years to sort of experiment with team building in sort of a non-pressure situation um, where the guys knew me, they trusted me. I trusted the coach and, and sort of went over pretty well. So when I got the job at uh, Fresno state, here's where the personal and professional sort of cross. I was approached by a lot of the, the teams there and asked me to work with them. And I got approached by a head coach of the equestrian team. And, um, Growing up in Canada, I didn't know anything about equestrian. Don't didn't ride too many horses in my experience. Um, You put on a pair of skates, yes, but horseback riding, no. But nonetheless, that's irrelevant because when you're talking about mental skills or team building, you don't really have to know the sport. And the coach said, you know, we're a a team of about 60 athletes. We've only been together for one year and our cohesion is really low. Is there anything you can do to help our cohesion? I, I said, well, I was always, interested in doing a team building intervention program for over a season, would you like me to try it? Because I hadn't seen too many, if any examples in the literature about sort of season long team building interventions. And the coach said, sure, try it. So I had a colleague who uh, was an expert in cohesion. She studied with Bert Caron for her PhD and uh, had a really good understanding of team dynamics, group dynamics. And we created a team building intervention and uh, we found that it increased the cohesion of the team over the year. And I'll tell you something funny about it. So we, we created about six different interventions around various topics. But one of the ones that came out when we did some interviews is the athletes weren't happy with their like team building is based on task or social. So do you like each other? And are you working on the task together? So the task numbers came out low. And we were trying to figure out why is the task so low? Why are people so upset with, you know, working on this team? And we soon found out that um, the 60 athletes had 20 horses where they trained on every day. And the horses had to be cared for in the barn at the end of the day. And what we found out was that about one third of the athletes were staying behind and grooming the horses and cleaning them and cleaning the stables and caring for them. And the other two thirds were taken off. They didn't want to help because it was the dirty job. So we basically created this activity with the athletes and the coaches that basically assigned 60 athletes, 20 horses, three girls to each horse. And that team was responsible for taking care of their horse that night. And when the coach went around and checked the stables, if that horse wasn't cared for, you had to do all 20 horses the next day. So to make a long story short, cause I keep joking about this, basically I spent you know all this time learning about team building, doing my PhD in sports psychology. And the thing that came out of that study is that a lot of athletes didn't like scooping the poop of horses. So <laughs> it, was kind of, it was kind of my first foray into it. And I thought it was sort of funny. And then I'll just tell you one more story and then let you tell me if you want me to elaborate on it. Um, professionally when i uh, worked in the nhl for the montreal canadians um, we also did a lot of team building stuff one of the things that i remember I, two things i'll share one of them was that we had players from a lot of different countries and nationalities on the team and we created a slogan for the year which was about it's all about commitment and we, de- we defined what commitment was and we had um, a, a shirt made up And one of the things that we put on the back was the word commitment written in the language of every player on the team. So that everybody would feel a part of it. And that was, we tried to really break down the cultural barriers. So that was one thing we did. And the other thing, we would go away on a retreat before the beginning of the year and I would plan some activities and the trainers and even some of the people at the hotel that we stayed at said that this was the most fun they'd ever seen the athletes had. And I created activities that were educational but we're helping them and they enjoyed it and, you know, really got me to understand that one of the fun things about team building is not only can you help a team, but you do things that people like to do and that are a little different. And I'll probably talk about some more activities as we go along, but that's my general uh, intro into, into what you'd asked me.
1: Yeah, that sounds interesting. And I, I have to say as a, a youth hockey coach that, uh, a example of the the poop scooping in the horse stables is a little bit more extreme but it reminds me of you know just collecting the pucks after practice and how such a kind of a a little thing like that can kind of have a, a bigger impact on the on the team cohesion overall um so with that in mind you know how important do you think team building is for the performance of the team
2: so i think it's it's really huge um i mean i've spent Now, 25 years studying, you know, team building, team dynamics, leadership, coaching. So I have the research for myself and for my colleagues to prove that it works. And, um, you know, I remember when I was back at Fresno State, this is a message for some of the coaches. I was at Fresno State, the women's basketball coach asked me to work with the team. And she wanted to work on some team stuff. And so I looked at her schedule and I said, "Okay, let's do it uh, Tuesday night from 6 to 7. She said she was had a she had an accent. She said, Golden, what do you mean, six to seven? That's my court time. Right. And I said to her, I said, Yeah, I know it's your court time, but I want to do a team building activity on the court with your team. It's gonna be some movement, some cooperative activities, you know, and 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 she just couldn't wrap her head around the fact that I was taking away time that she was devoting the technical and tactical and maybe physical training to work on mental training for team building. And I faced that sort of barrier throughout my career that coaches are so afraid of giving up time on the court, on the field, on the ice, on the pool at the risk of learning a physical or technical skill in and not working on team building. And team building has to be part of your repertoire as a coach you have to work it into your practices and yeah sometimes you give up the technical the tactical the physical training but the advantages and the gains that you'll get from your team on doing team building activities will far outweigh them not being able to make a great pass or shoot a free throw or you know throw baseball
0: Well, now you brought up some very interesting examples from the female basketball coach and what i find very interesting is that the coach displays a certain behavior and with his behavior he might have an impact on his or her athletes so how does the behavior of the coach influence the actions and experience of the individuals and the cohesion of the team overall
2: a lot um, you know good coaching gets overlooked as you probably know and When things go well, parents, agents, players, they just assume that, oh, it's just happening, you know? And then when something goes off the rails, they're quick to blame the coach. So my thoughts are that good coaches have these cohesive teams because of the things that they're doing. And sometimes they're doing it implicitly, sometimes they're doing it explicitly, but I, I truly believe that every interaction verbal or nonverbal that you have as a coach with your athletes has an impact. It has an impact on their confidence. It has an impact on the team cohesion and all of those factors ultimately affect how much an athlete enjoys his or her experience. And I believe the more they enjoy their experience, the better they're gonna play and the more successful it's gonna be. So for me, Coaching is an art, it's an art form, it's a craft and everything that you do and say as a coach has an impact on your team cohesion, which has an impact on the athlete satisfaction, which has an impact on performance.
1: So Gordon, I want to ask a follow up here on on the last couple uh, things that you've said, you know, you mentioned how some coaches just kind of assume that the the team building process is is happening and and you also mentioned earlier about you know how that that example from Fresno say how it impacted really their their team performance but when you think about or when i think about like youth sports for example you know team performance for me of course you know not taking anything away from players wanting to win games and everything like that but for me true team performance at a youth level is you know, development and, and getting better and taking the next step. So does the team cohesion and the team building, does it have any impact on the actual development of the athletes as well?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Because when you do team building, if you're doing it properly, I haven't really got into what team building is and we'll probably get into that as we go along, but basically it's a way to improve somebody's confidence. It's a way to improve communication skills. It's a way to improve life skills. And in youth sport, what should be your priority is, again, your development. And your development is not only in sport, but it's in life. And team building are a wonderful opportunity to do that because one of the things that you do when you do team building activities, at least when I've done them in youth sport, is the athlete that's the most confident or the most skilled or gifted on the team If you're doing the right types of team building activities, they will not have any advantage over the least skilled. So it breaks down that barrier and puts people on more of an even level and and allows them to communicate and cooperate more effectively. So um, there's a lot of residuals to it that I think come into play that impact what I think is is important for a youth sport coach. So Gordon, when we think about
0: The season schedule seems to be that it's regardless of age group or or playing level is that it's a pretty busy and long season. Um, How often should a team conduct team building activities?
2: I think for a direct team building activity, I would say once every three weeks. I think that's a reasonable time frame. Whereas, you know, it allows the athletes to still get excited when you do something, but it also gives you a little bit of time as a coach to evaluate what's important. So when I do team building activities, I consider the time of the season and talk to the coaches and say what's going on. And, you know, if they've lost their composure in a game, we can talk about that. If it's poor leadership or communication, we'll talk about that. Um, if they see cliques maybe ar- ar- arising, we can. Do an activity that breaks that down. So, um, I think once every three weeks is uh, is 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 a fair time frame.
0: So,
1: Gordon, before we kind of move into our, our next segment here, you, you brought up uh, I think a, a a good point there. Um, what what actually is team building?
2: It's really, you know, Derek. It's really misunderstood. Um, there's probably a lot of coaches that still think, um, hey let's have a potluck dinner or let my team go to the movies or go bowling. And that's team building. And I would argue absolutely not, that's team bonding. And the reason I say team bonding is not team building because if you are going out for a team dinner, who's deciding where you go? Usually it's the team captains or the leaders, the same people that make every other decision. If you're going to the movies, who's deciding that? Again, there's a few people that are making those decisions. So team bonding is social gatherings, but it's not team building. Team building is actually very deliberate tasks or activities that are basically what I call sort of physical or emotional problem solving tasks and challenges. So you're actually doing an activity that emphasizes fun, cooperation, communication. So you create an activity where this happens. And I'll I'll give you one example from a study that we did on our youth team building program. We we, we did a study actually with um, 10 to 12 year old hockey players in Canada. We did a season long team building intervention program. And the first thing we did was the balance beam. And what we did was we put I think it was six kids on the balance beam. And it was only about a foot off the ground. It wasn't a high balance beam. We put six kids on the balance beam. We said, okay, no no verbal communication. You have to get in line on the balance beam from the youngest to the oldest person. And if anybody falls off and touches the ground, you have to get back up and start over again. And... So, I mean, it forces a lot of things. First off, you have to figure out how to communicate without speaking. And they can do that. You can communicate age, but then you have to help people move along the beam. And that's where you got to work together. And what's really cool is usually in youth hockey, the most talented players are usually the biggest, strongest ones, right? So these are the people that actually have the most difficulty moving on the balance beam. It's those small little agile kids Get pushed around in hockey that actually are the MVPs on the balance beam. So, you create an activity where they have to figure out how to solve this problem, they have to communicate to do it, and they have to do it non verbally, and they have to cooperate physically to move along the balance beam. So, to me, that's an example of team building Um, hazing or you know, uh, initiations. Absolutely not. People say initiation or team building. That's a lot of crap. What you do, if you do an initiation activity, all you're doing is reinforcing hierarchies, control, and breaking. And you're basically, I had one coach that tell me, every time I used to do an initiation, I'd spend the next two months trying to undo all the bad things that was done in it. So it's really important that coaches understand the difference between team building, team bonding, and hazing. And the only one that works and that's effective is team building, but you got to have the right activities when you do it.
1: Yeah. So, you know, diving into those activities a little bit more and, you know, I think um, a lot of times coaches, at least in my opinion, they, they kind of see team building as, um, you know, you've mentioned the word intervention and I, I I don't think that I'm using it with quite the same meaning, but you know, when something's going wrong, you do team building that kind of thing, you know, instead of. I think in, in the way we've been discussing it, it's kind of been a if every you know it's part of every season normal season that kind of thing, so you know, looking at it from a a fixing things when things are wrong, we would like to to kind of pitch or pose several kind of hypothetical situations to you. Um, of what we think is like a bad team environment and, and ask you for your strategy to kind of help right the ship in that in that situation. um. So the first one would be, you know, kind of an unsupportive team environment. Uh, there's there's cliques forming. Uh, certain groups may not like playing with other groups on the team, and and kind of stuff like that.
2: I think one of the first things that um, that I would look at, if I was the coach or if I was working with the team, would be uh, the dressing room and where people sit in the dressing room can often get overlooked, right? Um, and it, it, for me, you know, when it really first became um, apparent was when I heard, it was a 10, 20, 20 years ago, one of the coaches of the Detroit Red Wings giving a talk. And he said the Red Wings had just picked up a new player on the team. And it was uh, a legendary player, Brett Hall. And Brett Hall could talk a lot and Sometimes would aggravate his teammates. So the coach said, like, they thought about this when they brought him in, where do we put Brett Hull in the locker room? Where he won't be disruptive, but he can still feel comfortable. So they gave him an end stall. So he was only going to be next to one player. And they sat him next to Pavel Datsuk, who was a rookie from Russia and didn't understand English. So basically Hull could speak as much as he wanted. Datsuk didn't mind, he didn't really understand. And then everybody was happy. So it just, you know, if you have a disruptive room as a coach, think about who's sitting where. And you don't want your captains and assistant captains sitting next to each other. You want them spread out. And if and cliques, you want broken up. And sometimes athletes don't even know what you're doing. But, you know, sitting next to somebody in a dressing room is the best way to get to know them. That's really,
0: that's really interesting because if I think back about my own playing time. Usually when we went to the rink, of course you always try to sit next to your buddies but then at the same time is that is that really productive for the cohesion and for the collectiveness inside the team. So it's really interesting maybe playing a little bit around and also maybe mixing it up these things um, during the season and I think it's in youth hockey and junior hockey it's, it's interesting to follow it up uh, like really consciously. So and our next scenario is that You get a new player in the team or you have a player that is seen as an outsider to the other players. Is there a difference in team building activities for this scenario? And what step can you take to bring them into the team?
2: You know, a scenario like that, I mean, again, team building, we want to bring people together. So what type of activity could be created to break down some of these barriers and, you know, One of the things that they always talk about in Team Canada, our World Junior Hockey team is, um, I know the person who, you know, was their mental performance consultant, and they would get players from all over Canada. And our country is big. Geographically, we're huge, right? So when we get players on a Team Canada, they're coming from everywhere. So one of the things that the the mental performance consultant does is it brings out a map of Canada, gives each player a thumbtack, And he says, I want you to go up to the map and I want you to put the thumbtack on the city where you were born and raised. And then I want you to tell everybody in the room a little bit about that city. You know, what what it's like to live in that city. And, you know, to sort of go back to your question is, sometimes the best way to bring people in is just to get them to talk about themselves outside of hockey. Get them to talk about, you know, where they were raised, where they were born. Could ask, you, can, you can give any type of question, you know, who's the best youth sport coach you've had and why, or what NHL player do you admire the most and why? You know, you get them to think, reflect, and just talk about themselves. And sometimes that breaks down a lot of barriers. You talk about the human side of people.
1: So I have a, I have a quick follow-up with that. And I, I wanna share kind of an example that that we hear a lot um, in our studies from our, our instructor, Posse, sorry, Posse. Um, who is the, he's the head coach of the Finnish women's national team over here. And, you know, one thing that that he has his team do every camp, um, regardless if it's, you know, all returning players or all new players, you know, every, every woman um, and every member of the staff, they go around and they give each other a hug and they ask about how they've been doing, you know, from the previous camp. So uh, the reason I bring that up is, as you mentioned, you know, um, kind of, opening up and talking about yourself as a as a human is that is that a hard thing to kind of get athletes to do because you 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 hear that a lot um you know with professional sports and stuff like that is it's all about who you are as an athlete and how do you get them to kind of open up and talk about
2: themselves well it's not easy right but as a coach you have to make it part of your culture you know like I recently watched on Netflix this documentary on the Chicago Bulls. It was about Michael Jordan. It was about the Chicago Bulls. And it was, and I read a lot of stuff about Phil Jackson and how he coached that team. And I read his book, Eleven Rings, how he coached the Lakers. Um, Obviously, (laughs) the most successful team sport coach in my generation. So I'm reading and learning everything about him. And just, you know, he created this atmosphere, you know, where they would do like, they would talk about Zen and do yoga and get really esoteric in some of the things they did. And most athletes would just like, there's no way I'm doing this. But I think with Phil Jackson, this was part of his culture. He related to sort of his roots growing up in Montana and he was very spiritual. And this is part of their team. So I think as a coach, this sort of personal sharing openness it just it's you decide to do it or not and you know it's done at the highest levels you gave the example of your Finnish hockey team i just talked about the nba team it it can become part of the culture it just depends on the coach if the coach is going to make that happen or not
0: yeah it's really interesting that every kind of coach bring his own culture into his team and it's even more interesting how the athletes perceiving it and then maybe even that if you realize that they perceive it not in the most positive way are you do you adapt it or do you stick still with the same thing but this is a totally different question but it's still very, uh, still very curious scenario so our next scenario we have prepared for you is that let's say a team has a very long losing streak and lots of cohesion has taken place within the team the players are blaming now each other they are finding excuses they finger pointing all over the place and the overall climate is very negative what do you do as a coach and how do you act
2: i remember reading some work from my colleagues in canada uh, nick holt and they they did some team building activities and one of the things that they talked about was this activity called the pledge and What it is, is they have every athlete on their team, write a newspaper article about themselves that highlights their skills and their strengths. So it talks about like their character, their athletic strengths, their personal strength. And they write it about themselves as they would want it to be written. And then they give it to a teammate and the teammate looks over and says, yes and they read it out to the, the rest of the team. So it highlights a lot of the positive straights, but also if the team's going through a difficult time, someone can call out someone and said, hey, Rick, remember, you in your personal write-up, you said that you were gonna be resilient, and that's what you said, but now you're sitting here blaming everybody else for our losing streak, and you don't seem like you're you know working through this. So, I I, I kind of like to turn a flip when things are going poorly to create an activity that brings out positivity because there's so much negativity, and having you write an article about yourself that highlights your strengths is really good. And then later on, when things are going so poorly, and if somebody sort of goes off the rails, someone can also come back to that and said, "Hey, remember you said that this was your this defined you well." what you just did there doesn't show me that you have as strong character as you said.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. When you, you just mentioned the the positive versus the negative there. And I, I I was going to ask uh, until you you said that, but, you know, I think that it's easy to, to focus on the the negatives when, when everything's going poorly on the field or on the ice or um, anything like that. And it's, I, I agree. And I think it's, Really important to to focus on those positives. Um, our final scenario that we wanted to pitch you is uh, if you you're a new coach coming into a group um, of players that have they've played together for several years and they've kind of established an environment how they operate and you don't you don't feel like it is too positive or if it's um, it's you're not comfortable in that environment and how it's working. So what what do you do in that situation to kind of um, change that environment to, to one that you can kind of operate in and is there a difference between you know a youth coach going into a, a group of players at the under 12 level that have played together for several years and for per, perhaps a professional coach that's comes into a, a new professional team with players that have been there for a while.
2: So you know that's an interesting question about youth sport and professional sport and it's definitely different. Um, so, for example, in professional sport what typically happens that I've worked in it is a new coach comes in and he or she will move out the assistant coaches, bring in his or her own assistant coaches will also make changes with the uh, athlete leadership group and not just the leadership group, but the team in general, you know, most coaches, if they come in it's because the previous coach has been fired in most cases and therefore it wasn't a good environment. It wasn't successful. So, they're going to have a big turnover. I know some coaches retire and you come in take a winning team. and That's a little different, but in general, I think in pro sport, you're just going to, you're going to have to bring in new people. Youth sports a little bit different, right? And especially when you have uh, situations where kids have played together uh, for many years. So um, I coached my son's baseball team this year. and We're the U18 team. So I'm coaching many kids that have been together now with me and each other playing baseball for about 10, 11 years, so it's a little bit more challenging to to sort of change things at that point, and it really is challenging, um, and I think if you have them that have been together for a long time, you've got to be subtle, but I think one of the things that I would suggest to coaches is maybe try and reach out to some of the players that have a greater influence in your on your team, and just... Try and buy them into certain things before you do them. Um, it doesn't have to be this in-depth talk because you know the younger kids they may not understand it. But I do think that if you try and reach to some of the kids that are the leaders and get them to say, hey, you know what? I think I want to try doing this. Do you think you can help so sort of empowering some of the kids and hope that they sort of come over to your way of thinking and they can. Be the leaders in the room. So you're sort of maybe working with a smaller group to train them to be more effective leaders so that it will trickle down to the rest of the team.
1: Yeah, so you you mentioned something interesting there about the professional sports being able to kind of bring in their own staff Um, and it kind of got me thinking about, you know, you mentioned earlier how you've been studying coaches as well. So is there um, Any I guess, advice or kind of scenarios for um, kind of team building within coaches, you know, and everyone talks about a coaching staff, a coaching team. And, you know, what um, I'm trying to word this in a, in a practical way, but is there any um, advice you would give to kind of a, a coaching staff that seems to be kind of struggling with communication or anything like that when they can't really uh, just hire new people kind of thing?
2: So you're talking about the coaching staff itself, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. I mean, I think having good, effective support staff, whether it's a team manager um, or assistant coaches or trainers can get overlooked. Um, they're part of the culture and sometimes they're part of the problem. Right. And, you know, as a head coach, that's part of your responsibility is crafting your support staff. And in in youth sport, it might even be the parents as well. Although not to the highest extent, but you also set the tone in how they act, how they behave, how you communicate with them. So I think as a youth sport coach, choose your assistant coaches wisely. Um, Yes, you want people that have good knowledge in your sport, but I think you want people that have the same philosophy as you as far as growth and development and teaching life skills. And, 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 and I've made mistakes too. I remember uh, two years ago in hockey, um, we didn't have a very good season. I just remember one of my assistant coaches, he was a friend of mine and all he kept focusing on was the losses, the losses, the losses. And I, you know, I, I couldn't get through to him. Like, losses. I I, I, I say to them I say, kids are 15. I say 10 years from now, they're not going to remember how many wins or losses that the team goes through. They won't, but they'll remember the relationships they have with each other and with their coaches. And if you just keep complaining and ripping on them, that's what they're going to remember. They're going to remember that a heck of a lot more than how many wins you get. Think about it. Like you played youth sport growing up. You don't remember records of your teams. But you remember the relationships you had with the coaches. And that's really what I try and instill in my assistant coaches. But like I said, I've made mistakes. I've had good ones and bad ones. It's not a perfect science, and it's not easy to to get the right people. Sometimes you don't know what you have until you give someone a chance, and then you watch them in action. You're like, holy cow, I didn't think you were like that.
0: Your answer is very interesting to me because I can definitely identify myself here as well because when I was 13, I think I was an under-14 player at this point. It was my first season. We got a new coach and meanwhile, I know him since 10 years and we are still in touch on a very regular base, talking to each other at least once a week and I don't really remember, as you have been pointing out here as well, very clear that what kind of activities we did, uh, how what kind of games we played of course, still a little bit Not really the results, but I do remember what kind of relationship I had with him and I have been establishing now over the last 10 years. And it's a very valuable to me that it's still possible for me to keep in touch with that person overall. And another question I have for you is that because in our conversation, you mentioned the word trust already sometimes I think, and how, what is the role of trust in team cohesion?
2: Um, I think trust is part of the, part of the equation for cohesion, uh, you know, trust, communication, leadership, um, they're all interchangeable. Um, I think trust with a coach and the athletes is really important. I mean, athlete to athlete is too. Um, so if you can create any type of environment that enhances trust, I think your team will be more successful, um, so I mean I'm not sure I answered it really well, other than to say it's incredibly important.
0: Yeah, and on the other side of the coin, how do you make sure that you develop this this trust?
2: Well, I think as a coach, honesty is probably something that's really important. Um, athletes, no matter how young they are, they'll see right through you if you're a if you're a dirty rotten person. If you favor players, if you treat people unfairly, if you lie to them, they'll see it right away. I think one lie or one form of something that's not, you know, that's not ethical or moral, the athletes will see it. And as soon as you lose the trust, you can't get it back. You lose it once, it's gone. And I, I believe that you see more of a person's character when you're going through difficult times than when you're winning all the games, it's when you're losing that you really sort of see people's character and you see how people react and and, and you see if trust is there.
1: Gordon, we've uh, we've kind of jumped around here a little bit, but before we move into our final couple questions, you know, you mentioned earlier you're you're a, a mental performance consultant and you work a lot with with individual athletes, and um, I was wondering, is there anything that that you can do there to kind of benefit the team cohesion overall with those individual athletes, or is that kind of a, a separate kind of focus area?
2: I think part of it is if my athletes come to me and they talk about interpersonal communications and some of the difficulties. A lot of times it's coach athlete, right? You have difficulties. So what I do with athletes, and I work with a lot of athletes, you know, developmental that are 14 to 20. Um, so they're not professional yet, but coach still has a big impact in them and and i will talk to them about how to communicate with your coach so you know a lot of athletes have a difficult time if they disagree or don't understand something a coach did they're not sure how to ask them or they're afraid to ask them so a lot of times with my athletes i'll do role playing and i'll say this is how you this is what you can say to your coach this is how you can say it and ultimately that does affect team cohesion right because especially if it's one of the better players and he or she is not happy you try and facilitate a better relationship with their with their coach will impact team cohesion
1: yeah yeah that's interesting so you know earlier in the conversation you mentioned uh the the fresno state basketball team the uh, i think it was the equestrian team um there at mcgill and then the the montreal canadian so kind of a, a variety of different teams and, and definitely a variety of sports but can you remember Kind of one team that you've worked in um, or more multiple teams that you've worked in that kind of stand out to you as, as great examples of, of good team cohesion. And can you kind of explain why they stick out to you?
2: Oh, boy. <laughs> worked with a lot of teams. Um, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll since we've talked about it, I'll go back to the Fresno State Equestrian team. Um, and again, because we did measure cohesion, we measured it at the beginning of the season and at the end of the season. And I remember one of the activities that we did, and this, I think, answers your question. I think, uh, I think, I, I think I got the answer. So, one of the things that we did with the team, because they were a new team, was created something called a team covenant. So I remember reading. Uh, Pat Riley was the coach of the Los Angeles Lakers. He's an NBA basketball coach coach Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And he had a book where he talked about creating this team covenant, which is like kind of rules of order for the team. So I started talking to this equestrian team, to the girls and saying, like, do you understand how to act? You know, And there was just, there was a lot of things that they thought the team could do better. So one of them was like, when you're in an equestrian competition It goes from like eight in the morning till eight at night. And like some of the girls who were riding late at the night used to get upset that all the athletes had left and there was nobody cheering them on. Sounds something a little menial, but it bothered people. So we created these with the athletes. Like I put them in groups and they they created sort of the codes of conduct or our team covenant. We came up with these 10 list of 10 items that would define how we wanted to act as a team. Um, So then it came from the athletes doing it together. So I wrote it on, I had it typed up on a piece of paper, one page and all of the athletes signed it and they pledged allegiance to these 10 things we were gonna follow. So anyways, I thought that was pretty cool. And we did it, the athletes created it, but to go to your question, what I found really extraordinary was About a week after I finished that, one of the girls, uh, her father was an expert carpenter, and he had a, you know, a shop at his his home, and she invited 10 of the girls over on the team, and the father created this life-size horse, and the girls then painted it. They put, like, some hair on it to have the horse's mane, and they put the 10 aspects of the covenant, they painted it on this life-size horse and they hung it up right in front of the stables where they went into training every day. So every athlete who came in every day was reminded of these 10 aspects of expectations for our team. And I just thought that was really cool. You know, first I worked with them creating this, but they did it. But then they took it to another level by showing the buy-in by creating this life-sized horse and hanging it up and um, I think that was part of that, you know, improved cohesion that just really worked on it the whole year, and and the and the results certainly showed, and the team was very successful too. Uh, did very well at the national finals, and uh, it was it was it was it was a great all-round season. So, I think that works out well.
0: Yeah, on the conf- on the controversial side here is that do you have made any kind of experience where you have been? in an environment where the team cohesion was maybe negative, And how has this impacted the team's development process and season success?
2: Oh, it 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 happens. I mean, let's not kid ourselves that think that every sport team is perfect and runs smoothly, you know, and it doesn't always have to do with the mental performance consultant or the coach. I mean, it goes back to what I said at the very beginning. The first thing I spoke about was this recent study we, we did on on problem athletes and teams have them and when you have a problem it can be just one person. Some people said it's like a disease like cancer and and a disease that can spread. And if you have one bad apple they can influence other people and sometimes it gets so far to control that no matter how many team building activities you do, you can't fix it. So I I mean I think experienced coaches are better able to identify problems before they magnify and explode. But the other younger coaches um, sometimes they don't know what they're getting themselves into. And before they know it, it's out of control and your your season is gone. You know, one bad apple, poor cohesion, your season is gone.
0: It is a very interesting example because recently one of our instructors has been mentioning that the athletes who are let's say coachable and easy to coach you don't of course you learn from them but you grow much more with the difficult athletes and you learn so much from them because you really learn how to understand the the human behind the player and how to understand their perspective he mentioned it was a really very very interesting point of view and a new perspective overall and our final question for you is that What is the final message to coaches out there when it comes to team building and establishing team cohesion from your side?
2: My message is don't wait until something goes wrong that you think you have to implement team building. Be proactive and put it into your seasonal plan at the beginning of the season and promote it throughout the season. So plan for it no matter how, well or poorly your season is going and promote it and let athletes know this is an important part of being on this team i promote the physical training the mental training the technical and the tactical that would be my message
1: yeah yeah that's a great great final message so gordon thank you very much for joining us today to to talk about team building i think it's a Great conversation and and something that everyone can learn a lot from. So thanks for taking the time and and uh, hope everything goes well with you for the semester and and moving forward.
2: I welcome Derek Rick. Thanks for uh, having me and uh, same to both of you. Uh, our hockey season's on pause. We're hoping to get started in a month or so, and uh, nothing I look forward to more than than getting back on the ice. So hopefully sooner than later, but if not, we. Uh, we persevere and eventually things will get back to normal. Thanks, guys.
1: So what a conversation we just had with with Gordon there about team building and team cohesion and you know, I think it's something that, as we mentioned in the interview itself, it's something that is really overlooked by a lot of coaches at the at the youth level and at the professional level, and it's kind of just thought of as, as something that that builds itself, you know, you put, put a bunch of people together and, and they'll build a team, and I think that I was a, a victim of that that kind of mindset um, early on in my coaching career until really I got over here to Finland and you know talking to gordon it, it kind of opened my eyes a little bit more about how consistent you need to be with team building and how you know it's not just a, when things are going wrong we'll do a team building activity it's built into your season plan and it's worked on constantly you know you're, you're constantly reminding them to, you know communicate work as a team and everything like that and you're designing these activities to to emphasize those things and to really build up that team cohesion and I think that that is that is something that I really took away from the episode from, from Gordon today. And I thought it was really interesting.
0: Yeah, and especially the reason why you should conduct team buildings every three weeks is uh, a very reasonable, reasonable for me because as he has been explaining as well, for you as a coach, it gives you the time to reflect on the activities and what have you actually done and how it worked out. But at the same time, if you think about your season is starting. Maybe in August and, and some fair in April, depending, of course, on age group and um, also if you play playoffs or maybe not. But just think about in in from August until April, how many team building activities you can actually have with the entire group. And if you think about it as well, that if you have a certain amount of team building and you do it really every three weeks, how close all the players could get with each other and how how well could they get to know each other on a personal level? Because they have so many problems to solve, as Gordon has been describing as well. Team building is problem solving. They have they have to face so many challenges together, and they have to collaborate all the time.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's not just you know. It's not just as he put it, team bonding. It's not just going to the movies together. It's, it's as you just mentioned, it's solving problems together, and you know the activities they should have an in emphasis. Inf- emphasis on fun and, and cooperation and and things like that as Gordon mentioned but you know it's it's um it's a little bit like uh I, I'm remembering now the conversation we had with lawi Hakala and a, a little bit with Darren um about deliberate practice it's all it needs to be deliberate team building it's not just hey let's go hang out outside of the rink it, it's deliberate team building putting them in in situations where they have to work together in order to succeed and and doing those in, in fun ways where everyone gets engaged and, and has has some fun and and I think that really kind of opens up and and breaks down the the barriers of the individuals and you know I, I really liked the the segment of the conversation when we started getting into the the practical examples that I think uh, a lot of coaches can can kind of relate to and and have dealt with something similar in their careers and I think that You know, if you talk about breaking down barriers, that that one where we're talking about, you know, a new player coming into the team or a player that is kind of a, as seen as an outsider with the team, I thought that one was really powerful um, because it it talks about, you know, getting down to the human level, you know, talking to each other about their lives outside of hockey, putting them in situations where, you know, they're not just a hockey player, they're they're a human being. I thought that was really interesting and a, a really powerful piece of team building.
0: Yeah, definitely. And uh, for me, the most interesting thing here were, was when he was mentioning that actually, we coaches, we really need to be aware of where do our players sit in the dressing room next to each other, because that can can give us a very interesting sign about the how the hierarchy is in the team. And maybe it's not always the best choice if the captains and the assistants sitting next together mixing it up and maybe also even... Depending where you coach, maybe after after every few weeks, change change the order of the locker room, change the players that they really get to know different players, and all the time mix it up a bit. Of course, talk with the players, with them, ask them, talk to the leadership group. Maybe what do they think? How we should how we should sit for the next few weeks? And it's just it's just so important important, and it just makes so much sense as as I've been mentioning and in the episode as well. When I think about my my own playing time is that when I went to practice, that usually the most of the time I had my spot, and I like my spot, of course. And most of the time, you sit all the time next to the same person, next to the same people, and you never change it really. So we really need to keep that in mind. And at the same time, is that those team building activities they are so important because they are social and physical tasks, which are focused on problem solving. Just to highlight this one more time, I know we have been speaking about this already, but Really, that this this task piece, social task pieces, is, is very very crucial. And at the same time, I found it very important when he was talking about that. Even as a coaching staff, you need to choose your, the, you need to choose the coaches you are working with very wisely, because at the end of the day, you work with these guys for, again, from August until April, maybe May, depends on where you coach, age group and level, everything, and. And even there, it's really important that you get to know each other, that you face difficult situations, and that you, at the same time, of course, you need to have team bonding events, but also of the coaching stuff, you need to have team building events at the same time as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think you know, it goes back to, I think one of the first things we learn about in this program is group dynamics and and how that, and how the process that that our class is actually going to go through with with each other and. You know, it was a little bit different for my first year because we had uh, our our first year cut short in, in March. But you know, it's really going through a process like that and then having this conversation with Ford and it really highlights how important you know making sure your group dynamic is is something that everyone wants to be a part of and everyone wants to to come every day and, and participate and input things and and have a voice. And I think that that is that is something that. It's really crucial. And, you know, the last thing for me is, and I think I've said it about three or four times here at the end, but, you know, Gordon's message at the end was was something that is really powerful and something that that I'm going to take away from this episode for sure. And, you know, it's it's don't wait until things go wrong. You know, build that team cohesion up way before that, right away, all throughout the season. Like you mentioned, every three weeks, don't don't wait for something to, to be uncomfortable or um kind of uh negative or anything like that don't wait for that just just go for it right away and start building that team and start building that that cohesion that that increases in performance that increases you know social um kind of well-being of the players and then, and it, it just increases the overall experience for everybody and you know we talk about it so much that your job as a coach especially at the youth levels to make sure they come back and if they don't want to be part of the team they don't want to be part of the group then then they don't want to come back so right away start that and, and i think that's something that i'm going to take away and use for the rest of my career
0: yeah at the same time they are increasing self-confidence and self-confidence is so important and it mirrors every action of the player in every situation and every game how much self-confidence a player has or does not have and that's an very important additional reason and just thinking about the message Gordon brought across that if you really do team building on a regular base every three weeks that again your season is very long and if you really do it so often is that just think about if you never know what happens and if times are maybe not that good or you have a tough player series the series also is on the line then at least you can rely on that hey I know that these guys will fight for each other i know that these guys will give everything for each other i know that these guys will play with passion and if there is this challenging challenging situation they won't keep their head up they will they will get up they will get up and they will continue playing they will simply give their best they will try hard
1: yeah yeah for sure well i think that's a a good place to end it there and you know something something for everyone to take away from today's episode so Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, as always, don't forget to connect with the show on social media to stay up to date with new episodes and new guests and everything like that. Our handle is at Coaches Road and we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And also send us an email. You know, we, we like to hear from you. Uh, and anything that you guys want to reach out with with for us, uh, don't don't hesitate. Our email is thecoachesroad at gmail.com and we look forward from hearing from you. We will see everyone next week for our episode with Anders Wallstrom from the Swedish Ice Hockey Federation. Uh, Again, thanks for listening, and we, we hope you enjoyed this one with Gordon Bloom.